This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Holy jeez Louise, I am back and I am ready to roll. Ready to rock and roll. Also extremely paranoid to get sick again because usually you have like a cold and you still, you know, you make it throughout your day, but you feel shitty. This was like, I'm in bed for four to five days, just not functioning. Thank God my husband was able to switch around his schedule. He wasn't on call those days. Well, he switched a call day with someone so he could pick up Milo, um, drive him to school and do all the things because I was not functioning. I wasn't totally unproductive because I did watch, I'm all caught up on the entire season of Below Deck Down Under, the Australian one. So I felt proud of myself for getting through that because it was, you know, when you're sick and you have a hard time even watching TV, that's how I felt. I could do small bursts of watching TV or reading my book. In the evening, I felt like I had a little bit more energy to watch TV, which was nice. But otherwise, I'm just laying on my pillow, drooling and texting my husband things like, can you bring me up some oranges and a grape? Not a grape, but a few grapes, a couple grapes, a handful of grapes. Um, So yeah, it's exciting. Whenever you're in that situation where you feel so shitty, it feels like it's never ending. You're like, oh great, this is my life now. I'm never going to be better. Or maybe I'm the only one that gets in that mindset, but it's daunting. And so... I'm really happy to feel better, but now I have things booked this week and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm I'm nervous to go out in public now. Like I don't want to get sick again. It's crazy because I have traveled all over the place to LA multiple times. We went to Switzerland, like did all the things, never got sick. And I knew that going like Milo going back to school, although I don't think that's what it was. It might have been the event that I did in Toronto because otherwise, like I work from home, I don't do that much, but it just goes to show like you can get sick anywhere. Like you can travel all over the world and not get sick and then you go to the grocery store and you get sick. But I just knew I was like, school is going to start and we are going to get sick. And of course, I'm always the one that gets the most sick. Anyways, this is a long way to tell you that because I had to cancel quite literally four recordings in the last week, I was supposed to go to New York and record three in-person episodes. I was supposed to record virtually 
with someone. Those all got canceled. So we decided to revisit one of the most downloaded episodes from 2022 that is very relevant to our listeners. And that is the episode on romantic attachment and your marriage post kids with Zara Arshad. She is a psychotherapist that specializes in perinatal mental health, but also marriage, relationships, couples in postpartum, and also couples that are expecting so that they can, you know, figure shit out before it happens. It is such a valuable episode. The topic of romantic attachment is so interesting to me because oftentimes we hear the word attachment and we think parent-child, which is true, but there is also romantic attachment and it is fascinating. So without further ado, guys, please enjoy this episode that we recorded in person and welcome Zara Arshad to the mom room again. When I was making the outline for you to come on the podcast, I was like, oh, I don't even know if she has kids, but I know that you specialize in a lot of issues that couples have after having a baby. So I kind of assumed that you did have kids. So maybe we'll start there with how many kids you have and what your own transition into motherhood was like. Mm -hmm. So I have two kids. One is a four-year-old. My son, he's going to turn five in September. And then I have my two-year-old daughter. So as I was mentioning earlier, I'm in the storm of tantrums and my son being my son and just not listening these days. So that's that's a lot, lots of joys of motherhood that are happening these days. So I've got those two kids and my journey into motherhood was interesting because my first one was born pre-pandemic and I've been around lots of babies in my family. So I felt pretty comfortable with the idea of having a baby around me, you know, feeding them, changing their diapers, giving them baths, all of that didn't make me nervous. Like the physical care yeah. of a child. I was like, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I've done it so many times. But then the other stuff that came with it, like for example, breastfeeding, obviously that's an experience I never had. And it was so, so incredibly challenging. I just kept thinking, how is something so natural yeah. this freaking difficult? And I just could not figure it out for the life of me. And my son was really struggling to latch. So there was a lot of screaming and crying. So a lot of anxiety, even just leading up to feeding, even switching sides just brought on so much anxiety because it took me so long to get him to latch on one side. It was pretty disastrous those first three months. And I didn't, and then, you know, the witching hour and things like that stuff that nobody really prepares you for until you have your child. I just remember feeling kind of lonely those days. Very lonely, actually. I find breastfeeding very isolating. You know, you're you're stuck in a room just feeding all day and trying to figure this out. And no matter how much your husband or your partner wants to support you, they're limited to a certain capacity. And then feeding all night long, I'm alone doing it. So it's a very isolating experience. And in that sense, I, you know, experienced not that I would say I had postpartum depression or anxiety, anything like that, but I felt my mental health was getting affected. And that was that experience. Then eventually found my groove, settled into motherhood, figured things out. But I do remember wondering, like, why did nobody prepare me for any of this? Because I went to the labor classes. I went to lactation consultants. I went to, I met doctors. You know, I did everything I was like supposed to do. Like the type A over-prepare. Yeah. That was me too. Did all that. <laughs> nobody once talked to me, hey, you might 
feel lonely some days. You might feel isolated. And these are the resources you can reach out to. You know, the mental health kind of stuff and the relationship stuff, how having a baby can take a toll on your relationship. Nobody talks about that. That's like hush hush, like it doesn't even happen. So that sort of sat in the back of my head. And then I had my daughter at the very start of the pandemic in April. So very, very start of the pandemic. And the challenges of having a baby in the pandemic, any parent who's given birth in the pandemic, it's it's tough. I mean, if I thought isol- I was feeling isolated the first time around, the level of isolation here was a lot more. I didn't have family visiting me the way that I had with my first one, even with my husband's family who live close by. You know, we were so anxious with a newborn baby. We were so afraid of like, wait, can anyone come over? Can anyone touch? How much distance? It was so anxiety provoking. We were pretty isolated. And actually at that time, you couldn't even see families. So that wasn't even an option. So that was very isolating. And then breastfeeding was a whole different level of a challenge with my daughter because she refused to breastfeed and she would refuse the bottle what do you do with a baby who's not gonna breastfeed I cried cried a lot (laughs) a lot that's all I could do because I mean my back broke like trying to just get and and I'm losing my supply because she's not feeding pumping was really not helping either because I needed to make sure she was feeding off of me what was I gonna do with a pump mill she's not gonna take the bottle she refused the bottle and she dropped to like the third percentile, I think by the third month. And I couldn't start solids till the fourth month. That's what, and then the anxiety of COVID and the anxiety of not being able, just literally watching my child every appointment, she's just not growing. She's not growing. That really took a toll on me mentally. It impacted my marriage with my husband. And then I had my toddler. I had my son at that time who was two years old. Which is such a hard age. And it was now so you're- and then you're isolated, you've yeah. got no one really helping you, Not no one is able to help you. You don't know what COVID is, what it can do, how it can impact a newborn, breastfeeding. There's just no research out there at that time. So it really, really did yeah, impact me pretty strongly for a good year. And I feel my marriage really suffered too in that year. And that's when I was like, what is this? Like, why am I feeling this way? Why did nobody prepare me for this? Why did nobody talk to me about these struggles? Why do I not know who to turn to and who to talk to about these things? That's where I became passionate about the idea that that this isn't right. Like we bring babies into these world, uh, in this world, and we're given no resources or tools to manage our own mental health and our relationships health. And meanwhile, we're supposed to raise a baby in this relationship talking about you know, not single parents, but parents were doing it together. And so that's where my desire was born to help couples either, you know, either committed couples who are either thinking of having a baby who are already expecting or who've already had their baby to really help support their relationship and help them ride that, that wave of that first year, especially postpartum, because that's where a lot of relationships break apart. Even to just know what to expect. Like, I was like you, like I went and met with the doulas. I went to like labor and delivery classes. I, you know, looked up all the breastfeeding stuff. I read all the books. Then you're in postpartum and you have this baby and you're like, why did I prepare so much for labor and delivery, which is largely out of my control anyways. And had I just known a little bit about what to expect, it would have been much easier. And also... Like you, I was like, am I the only one that feels this way? Like I was thinking back to everyone in my life I knew in that recent period 
that had had a baby. And I was like, wait a minute, like they seemed fine. Like this wasn't going on for them. Like they wanted visitors. I went and visited her like two days after she gave birth and she was fine. Like, why am I feeling this way? So even just to like open up the conversation and tell people what they can expect when it comes to postpartum, to mental health, to their relationship, like that would be great. Do you find you work a lot with couples who are planning on having a baby or who are pregnant? A lot of couples are either in their first year postpartum with their first baby or they're in the phase where they've, they're expecting their second or they've just had their second and they have the toddler and they all come to me for relationship support. The day I specialized in this and started marketing, I was being flooded by couples reaching out to me. I bet. And I was like, yes, like this, like this is what needs to happen in the community. These are the resources that need to be made available. There needs to, if there's a labor and delivery class, there needs to be a mental health class. There needs to be a class that talks about, hey, these are the struggles you and your partner might experience. And this is how you can sort of handle them. Why don't we have classes like that? If you're preparing how to give birth, I mean, it doesn't stop there. That is actually the start. I know. And it's so quick. I was like, I prepared forever for this. And it was like the blink of an eye. And mine all of a sudden, 33 <laughs> amazing hours long. So mine was not the blink of an eye. But in the grand scheme of things, yeah. it was a day and a half yeah. versus years of co-parenting yeah. and raising a child. Why are we not talking about that more? Not to scare couples, simply to prepare them. I mean, labor too, right? We talk about it. Why don't we talk about this stuff? Yeah. And I feel like to that point, a lot of people are afraid of labor and delivery, which is why that's what we're preparing for. But because we don't even know what people are going through in early postpartum, like you said, the first year, we don't even think to prepare for it because we're not afraid of it because it, like, we don't we're even oblivious know what it is. It. Yeah. yeah. But labor and delivery is like depicted on TV and in movies as this like traumatic, like, you know, exciting, wild time. And so we're like, oh my God, we've got to prepare for that. But then you quickly realize like there's a lot more important things that we should be preparing for. Yeah, it should be that and the other stuff. I mean, there needs to be that foresight that we have lots of stuff that's going to happen after the birth. After, yes. That we need to prepare for. So we're going to get into a little bit of attachment. And I know people love attachment. <laughs> Every time we talk about or I talk about attachment on TikTok, it's always a popular video. We are not talking about attachment parenting. That is a totally different thing because I think people get confused. So why is it important for people to understand what their own attachment style is? So knowing your attachment style just helps you make sense of why you think the way you think, why you fear what you fear, why you behave the way that you behave. And then it gives you an idea of, okay, and this is what I need to not feel all these things or think about all these things. So it just gives you kind of a framework and it's, you know, in couples and sessions, I, I don't get too much into the attachment talk. I'm not too big on like labeling things for people. I just, you know, but my brain is sort of processing, you know, and making sense of, okay, she tends to do this. He tends to do that. I work with heterosexual couples only. So that's why I'll be using those pronouns. And, you know, that it just helps me make sense of where they're coming from and 
when they can make sense of that, it's, it's, it's kind of like an aha moment for them too. Like, Oh, I get it. And it just, and even for the partner, right. Then they can understand. Okay. So I get that's what's going on. I feel like it would be similar to, you know, how people talk about love languages. Like it's similar to that. Like it's just something to know about yourself that like lets you understand better like how you function in interpersonal relationships or like why do I react that way when they do that or you know and then knowing a little bit about your partner it's like vice versa so people that are listening there's secure attachment anxious attachment avoidant and then there's a fourth category there's not a lot of people that would fall in that category but it's disorganized which is kind of like I wouldn't even know how to explain it it's high anxiety, high avoidance put in one person. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. Usually those are the people who have a, you know, trauma background. Really bad lots trauma. Lots of shame, things like that. So that population, it's sad, but that's not the one that ends up in therapy usually because then they have a lot of addictions and a lot of, you know, harmful coping skills that they deal with. So I think disorganized because of the training that I did, I always think about like how a baby or like a toddler would react to their parent because that's how I was trained in attachment was like watching the strange situation and you know how you like basically attachment if you're a baby or a young child it's like will your parent respond to your needs and so disorganized is kind of like sometimes they do sometimes they don't sometimes they do in like a terrible way and sometimes they do in a good way so like you don't know what to expect ever So that's kind of why it's called disorganized, I think. So people, adults who will go through each kind of attachment style and just talk about characteristics that they would have. So secure, I feel like everybody, just the name of it, it's like, oh, I want to be secure. Like, it sounds good. So A lot of people also think they're secure. Yeah. Because they don't want to believe that they're anything else than that. And attachment, we should point out, like, it's a spectrum, right? It's yeah. It's like the quadrant thing. And so yeah. you kind of fall somewhere. So if you picture a box that has like a cross through the box and there's four quadrants, it's like secure, avoidant, anxious, disorganized. And then you fall somewhere in there, like leaning towards one or the other more so. I'm like thinking back to university. Yeah, but also to clarify, your attachment style could change in different relationships. Yes. So it's not a permanent thing, which is good news. Because just because you tend to have be anxiously attached to your partner does not mean you're stuck with that. And that's you. Mm -hmm. You can work towards building a secure attachment. And then it could change. You could be a securely attached person and then you end up in a relationship where things are not leaving you feeling very secure anymore, right? So then that could kind of mess with you and change your attachment style. Right. So can we talk a little bit about what having a secure attachment style would mean? And I guess we can talk about it in the context of a romantic relationship. If it's okay, though, I want to give a little bit of background because, again, it doesn't start in the romantic relationship. It does start in childhood. So to just go off of what you were saying, how it develops between the parent-child relationship. Why? Because those are your primary attachment figures. And essentially, it helps when you're the way I explain it to my clients is when you're a newborn baby, you're a blank slate. No thoughts, no feelings, no beliefs, no perceptions, no fears, nothing. You're purely naive and innocent. 
And then as days and months and years go on, you start to learn about yourself. Am I worthy? Am I lovable? And it teaches you about the other. Is this person safe? Is this person reliable? Is this person consistent? That tells you about the world that you're living in and how you relate to that world. Attachment styles begin developing in childhood, but as I said, they evolve over time. You know, you could have been in a very securely attached relationship with your parents, and then you could have had terrible bullying experiences in elementary school. That could mess with your image of your self-worth, no matter how much your parents worked around making sure that you were taken care of and all those things. So, and then as you grow into adults, unless you're in therapy or consciously working on your attachment style, you're going to sort of grow with whatever attachment style that you developed in your earlier years. And then you end up in a relationship and that's where your attachment, then that's the adult attachment style. But it's very similar to that parent-child attachment style. Am I worthy? Am I loved? Does this person care about me? Am I important to them? Is this person safe to be around? Can I trust them? Are they consistent? Will they meet my needs? Can I depend on them? Same sort of stuff. It just is in the adult relationship. You know how people say, like, you'll seek out a partner that was similar to your parents? When you were saying that, I was like, I wonder if that's, like, you had this attachment with your parents and so you seek that out in a partner. I don't know how true that is, but I know that's a thing yeah. that people say. If it's just that a isn't, thing people say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's empirical research on I that, know. but if there is, I mean, I would guess maybe it has to do with, well, if you're used to behaving and conforming a certain way in relationships, then maybe you attract that same sort of partner. Yeah. I would guess. It's interesting. Yeah. So, okay, so that's how attachment is kind of developed within somebody, like their style. So now... Once they're an adult, let's say a romantic relationship, somebody who is secure and in a romantic relationship, what are some of the characteristics that they would exhibit? So a person who's securely attached is confident in their sense of worth. They know who they are. They know what their worth is. Uh, They're comfortable with closeness. They like to be close and connected with their partner, but they're not dependent on that closeness. They have a sense of autonomy, sense of independence, doing their own thing, but also maintaining that connection with their partner and that closeness. Um, They are able to trust. They're consistent in the way they respond and react and behave in the relationship. So yeah, I would say those are the sort of main characteristics. Okay. And then anxious attachment. So a person who's anxiously attached questions their sense of worth. They're quite insecure in how they view themselves. It could be common ones are, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. I don't matter. I'm not important. It's those sort of core beliefs this person holds, often without conscious awareness, actually, until they end up in therapy. And then, so lots of fear-based behaviors, because if you're rejection or abandonment, because they're not sure of their worth, So then fear-based behavior. So lots of could be people-pleasing, walking around on eggshells to make sure they don't tick the other person off, wanting closeness, but also being afraid of closeness because they can't trust it. Being hyper-aware, hyper-vigilant in the relationship. So then coming across as more sensitive, so to speak, to things that are happening in the environment or in the relationship. Okay, we'll go through avoidant, but I just wanted to say... Like all these things that you're mentioning 
for a romantic relationship. Like I can see those playing out in friendships as well. Right? Like all those behaviors are kind of Yeah, cuz think about it. If you are secure in your worth, you're going to carry yourself in life and relationships like you're a confident person. You know you who you are. You know what your worth is. You're not operating out of fears and, oh, I got to please this person because they might get upset with me and then they might end the friendship. No, you know who you are. You're going to behave according to what feels right and authentic to you. And other people's actions and reactions are not a reflection of your worth. So you carry yourself accordingly. But when you have an insecure sense of worth, anxious, avoidant, or the disorganized style, you're very much other people's actions and reactions, especially the anxious attachment style, they, in your mind, reflect your worth. So if they're mad at me, it could have nothing to do with maybe it was a bad day at work, they're stressed out, something happened. Nope, it's because I did something. They're mad at me. So it's a lot of personalizing behaviors too. So that could show up in friendships too. If a friend cancels on you, for example, somebody who's secure could think, okay, like maybe something came up, but they would also sort of model healthy boundaries too and let the friend know, hey, next time if something happens, please give me a heads up, but not without getting upset and things like that. Whereas an anxious person would start to personalize it. Oh my God, they canceled on me. And then they'll be in their head for hours wondering all the reasons. What did that, what did I do? What did I say? Rereading text messages. Those are anxious tendencies then. Is it an anxious characteristic to, you know, when, Maybe it's social anxiety. I don't know. I'll ask you. <laughs> so let's say you go to a social event and I know lots of people in my life that I know they'll go to a social event and then that night when they go home, they're like ruminating about like every interaction that they had. Like, did this person take that joke that I made the wrong way? Like, would that be something that an anxiously attached person would would tend to do? Yeah, because you're not sure about who you are. So you're always questioning yourself and you're always want, wanting to make sure the other person is happy with you because if they're happy, then you're worthy. If they're happy, you're good enough. But if they're not, then you're not good enough. You're not lovable. You're not worthy. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about avoidant and that must be difficult to, we'll get into that, but like to be in a relationship with someone that's avoidant, because what kind of characteristics would they exhibit? So the avoidant attachment style, again, not so sure about their worth, but they're, what I come across in therapy often is that core belief that we sort of uncover has to do more with being a failure. So I'm a failure. I'm not capable. I'm wrong. Or I fear failure. So a lot of their fears are related to failing somehow in life life relationship whatever it is and so they're very much their behaviors and their thoughts are oriented towards problem solving finding solutions fixing things and they're not very they don't trust very easily if at all and they're not comfortable with closeness often they have no idea what's happening inside they're not very attuned to their feelings and what their needs are therefore they cannot attune to their partner's feelings and needs either so those are kind of the characteristics of the avoidant. I'm thinking back to training that I had and avoidant, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> avoidant is like one characteristic would be 
because they grew up and were maybe not responded to or like needs were not being met, they are not capable or don't want to have to depend on somebody else. So they don't like reach out to people or like they just kind of stay self-reliance yes gotta take care of myself or if your feelings were often dismissed or denied and if you notice you notice I notice a lot of the men that I work with in therapy display the avoidant attachment style women display the anxious attachment style and is it a coincidence that boys are raised to not cry to not have feelings to have their feelings be belittled or dismissed or it's like a you know, it's a condescending thing if, if a little boy has feelings and girls different, like, and girls are also raised to look after other people's needs and be and a, nurture, a people pleaser, people pleaser, conform. So is it then that surprising that it's the women that display the anxious attachment style and the men who display the avoidant attachment style? And actually, that's the pairing that I work most commonly with is you've got the anxious wife or the part female partner and then the avoidant husband or it's it's not that I don't come across the other partnership but this is the most common one Mm -hmm. yeah I can see that for sure this episode is brought to you by little spoon If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Lil Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume 
consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so yeah, that was going to be one of my questions was like, there's got to be attachment styles that tend to be kind of yeah, gender based and like attracted to each other, like yeah. that end up together. together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's talk about 10 reasons that people struggle post baby. So you had this incredible post on Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? It's the couples coach, right? The couch. Dot couples couch. Yes. Couples I always couch. say coach in my head. Okay. So the dot couples dot couch, couch which is so clever. So Zara had this post that was like the 10 reasons couples struggle post baby. So I wanted us to kind of just go over each one, chat about it. And you can tell me like, or everybody who's listening, what your advice is for that specific topic. So the first one, and I kind of thought about these as well. So the first one was adjusting to a new normal. And I always talk about this. Because I feel like this one, some people are going to be much more affected by this than others, depending on what their life was before having a child, right? Because I always say like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like having children later in life, which is becoming more common nowadays, like I had Milo when I was 34, I had already lived like 10 years of being independent, single, on my own, living downtown in a condo. So to then, you know, be married and have a baby, that was like a huge transition. So adjusting to a new normal, while it's applicable to everybody, I feel like some people's adjustment would be much more like drastic than others. So what are some things that you see in couples that where they have a difficult time adjusting. Oh my gosh, where do I begin? It's, I know, like, it's everything like everything <laughs> from start to finish. From the moment that baby comes out, it's like the adjustment begins. But it's the lack of, I think, probably just like even like mental preparation because, you know, you've got the crib, you've got the nursery, you've, you've got the hospital bag, you've got all that laid out, the physical stuff. How mentally and emotionally prepared is your relationship to take on bringing a baby home? And talking about attachment styles, whatever attachment styles you have, anxious, avoidant, all those tendencies will become exacerbated, right? Because now you've got triggers It's like little landmines are everywhere now, right? So that stuff gets really, really exacerbated, which again helps couples to understand their behaviors and make sense of them. Why suddenly what seemed manageable in their relationship before became so exacerbated when they brought their baby home. Yeah, Just that mental preparation and something I would say as like a quick tip is if you haven't had a baby yet, you've got one on the way, start opening up the conversation about what does your day look like right now? You know, 
who wakes up for work, who does the breakfast, who does this, who does that. If you've got another one who drops them off to school, things like that. Okay, so you've got all your logistics down. Now, what's going to happen when the baby arrives? Now, who's going to do pickups and drop-offs? Now, who's going to do the sleeping and the waking up? Now, who's going to do this time and that time, you know? Like, start talking about that. Start envisioning your life with the baby in it because that baby's coming. Yeah. So, you might as well start thinking about it and preparing because conversations that would be easier to have before baby they're going to be much more difficult after baby. You've got exhaustion. You've got sleep deprivation. You've got a cute baby, but one that could be screaming and crying a lot, right? So it's like... Everything's like heightened. Like emotions will be... Yeah. I mean, your patience is low. Your tolerance is low. You're sleep deprived. There's a lot happening in that adjustment phase. So start preparing from before the baby arrives. And sometimes in couples, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that couples might be afraid to go there. Because, you know, pregnancy can be that happy, good phase sometimes, like a honeymoon phase. But no, talk about it. Start talking about it from before. I talk a lot about expectations. So number two was unmanaged expectations. So you kind of touched on that, like who is going to do what. But if you don't talk about it, I'm sure each person is like building up these expectations in their head and then the baby comes and reality hits and it makes it that much worse because now you had built up all these expectations that are not being met. Yeah. So talk about from before and if it doesn't happen before, that's okay. You can do it after too. Find good times to talk. Don't do it in the middle of the day when you guys are scrambling around or fighting in the kitchen, like, you know, carve out time for these type of important, meaningful conversations. You know, what do you expect of me as a co-parent? What do you expect of me as a mother slash father? How do you expect we will divide our roles and responsibilities? How will we, who will do the cooking? Who will do the cleaning? Because you're one of you could have the expectation, oh, we're just going to carry on. But one of you might have had a different expectation. No, things are going to change. Now you're going to do the cooking and cleaning because now I'm watching the baby. And then you're mad because your partner is still carrying on and not cooking and cleaning and the dishes are piling up or there's no food on the table. Now you're getting mad because you thought they were going to do it. Mm -hmm. But did you ever talk about it? They can't read your mind. You, yeah. you got to step out of assumptions. No one's a mind reader unless you've got some special powers. Most people cannot read minds. you got to cannot be mad at your partner for not meeting your expectations if you never communicated it to them in the first place. So talk about these things from before. If not from before, do it after. Talk about them. This is so funny because sometimes your expectation and what you want to happen might sound odd. Like in quarantine, I was home with Milo. My husband's a physician, so he was working his regular job. And I remember on Saturday morning, I would get so irritated because he would start making pancakes and like this big breakfast and like go and do the laundry. And I'm sitting there now watching Milo like I've been doing all week. And so we had to have this conversation where I was like, on Saturday mornings, can you not make pancakes? Like, can you not make a big breakfast? Like Milo can have toast. Like he doesn't need a big breakfast. Don't do laundry. Like you're not going to cut the grass. like, just, And he's like, hold on. So you don't want me to make breakfast or do laundry on Saturday? I'm like, no, because then I'm stuck doing what I've been doing all week. Like, let me go do stuff. But first I want to just have coffee. So sit down 
and have coffee with me. And like, that's a perfect example of something that on paper, it might look good. Like, oh, he's cleaning and making breakfast. Like so nice. And it's funny because every time I make a TikTok about something like that, people are like, in the comments, like, what a terrible woman, like her poor husband, like he can't do anything right. And I'm like, no, it's literally just like understanding your needs and vocalizing that to your partner. And of course he was super understanding and he's like, okay, like I had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, like we don't need freaking pancakes (laughs) every Saturday. But how would he have known that? And he thinks he's like a rock star husband (laughs) doing all these things for his wife. So he thought he was acing it. I know. So you gotta, you gotta talk to each other about these things. Yes. Okay. So number three, huge topic is division of labor. Huge topic because traditionally women do a lot of the household labor and the childcare. So nowadays, like this is changing everybody. Just, I don't know if you know this, but (laughs) it's changing big time. So what's your advice for couples on how to navigate the division of labor? So going back to the original point, try to talk about these things from before because you want to walk through your day, right? What are all the tasks? Where Who takes out the garbage? Who mows the lawn? Okay, now there's a baby involved. So how are we going to do this all, all this now? But after the fact, division of labor. Okay, so this is an interesting one because a lot of couples, as you can imagine, come to me fighting about division of labor. And what, what I often find, not always, but often, it's not the case of the division of labor or, you know, the tasks and the chores more to do with unmet needs. So what I find is that's where the fights are happening, but really the fights are not about the dirty dishes or the laundry. They're about something else entirely. And so I would encourage couples dig a little bit deeper and try to understand what you're really fighting about. Because if you're fighting about, you know, the dishes one day, the laundry another day, who's going to empty the dishwasher, all of that stuff. I mean, it's not big stuff. It shouldn't be turning into such a blow off fights as they do after baby, right? So then I, what I do in therapy and I, I have a book, as I was mentioning, that's Stronger Together, The Couple's Guide for Navigating Your Relationship After Baby. So that book, whenever it's out, hopefully this year, <laughs> that's going to walk you through exactly how to identify what your underlying patterns are and try to dig down and understand what is it really. Is it really about emptying the dishwasher or is it about something else? Because what I find is it's actually about something else. So I would say there's something else that's happening. Okay, perfect example. And my husband's great, but he knows. I I just have to use him as an example for the purposes of the podcast. (laughs) And it's funny because it's a similar kind of thing. So quarantine, back to quarantine. This is literally why I started all of this mom stuff because I started to notice so many things in quarantine that most people probably live every single day, regardless of it being quarantine. So I would wait for him all day to come home from work. I would be like excited for him to get home. Then he would get home and he would be like, hey, like say hello, give us a kiss. And then he would go and start doing the dishes in the sink. And I was like, why am I feeling rage? Because he's going to do the dishes. And like you're saying, it's not about doing the dishes. And most people would be like, they're not doing the dishes and I'm mad. No, I was pissed that he was doing the dishes, but it had nothing to do with, I don't care what he was doing. He could have went and played video games or the point was I've been excited for him to get home all day. And now he is 
putting his attention somewhere else, you know? So again, we had to have a conversation and I was like, when you come home, can you just come and sit with us and like talk to us and just literally be present with us for like 15, 20 minutes? Then together we can decide like who's going to start getting dinner ready and do the dishes. And, and so that was the need. That was the underlying thing. But I can see where people go to you and are like, I'm pissed off. My husband's doing the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. And the best way to figure that one out is like you go through, just go through your recent three, four arguments over one of those tasks and chores and really kind of dig down in the process and try to ask yourself questions. Okay. So when they are emptying the dishwasher or putting the dishes away, why did that make me so mad? Okay. That made me mad because they didn't come and like spend some time with me. Well, why is that so upsetting? Because I've been home alone all day and I'm needing some form of connection. Okay, so there's an unmet need there, right? So then that's what you want to communicate to your partner with. And if it is, in fact, you dig down and you're like, nope, it's coming down to the dishwasher or the dishes. (laughs) Like, that's what it is. You know, teamwork. You're a team. So you got to divide labor, not to try to one up. There's a lot of one upping, I noticed too, or like a lot of like 50-50. Well, no, I did X, Y, and Z. So now you must do A, B, and C. And it's got to be tit for tat. It's got to be exact relationships don't that work that work. way it does not work that way you know there's some days you might do more some yeah. days your partner might do more you got to work as a team right if you're a team player you're helping each other out you're bringing out each other's strengths and you're helping support flaws or weaknesses so if if a partner like talking about you know my marriage there are certain things my husband's just not good with so It's okay if that becomes my responsibility, but then there's other stuff that he's really good with. And then I'm hands off for that with that. Cause I'm like, okay, that's your department. So it's not about, well, I watched my baby tonight. So tomorrow night's got to be your turn. No, maybe watching the baby's not their thing, you know, at the newborn stage, some dads are just like flustered. They don't know what to do with a baby, but then they get really good with the baby when they're a toddler, for example. Right. So Try not to get into the tit-for-tat, 50-50 split. It just feels like a lose-lose battle. You know, try to enter, come come to it as a team, right? You guys have 20 things to get done in a day. Who's good with what? Who has time for what? And just, just do it based on that. And nothing should be set in stone because it, it is a phase of adjustment, which means it's, there's got to be some trial and error. So even if you've had some conversations that, you know, I thought I was going to do the drop-offs and she was going to do the pickups or I was going to cook the dinner and she was going to do the cleaning. One week into it, you might realize it's not working. So don't be dead set on that. Have like maybe a weekly check-in set where you meet together as teammates and say, you know what? We tried this this week. It wasn't working. What can we do better next week so it works better for us as a team? Yeah, you got to be flexible, especially with kids because there's maternity leave and then there's maybe, you know, mom is going to go back to work or if dad took paternity leave, they're going to go back to work or then the kids start school. Like there's constantly going to be changes. And literally for us, we are flexible like day by day. It's like, oh, I had a terrible day. I'm going to just sit outside while Milo plays in his water table. Like, can you make dinner the next day? Maybe my husband's working late, so I'm going to make dinner and put Milo in the bath. And like, your husband's a doctor. So he has a oh yeah, all over the changing place. schedule. So your relationship's going to look different. Yeah. So also about the 
division of labor, the 50-50, or sometimes it's not 50-50, sometimes it's task-based, like who looks after the baby and who earns the money type of thing, right? Also kind of evaluate where are all these ideas and expectations coming from? Because if there are ideas and values or expectations you have somewhere in the back of your mind, unconscious, like out of your conscious awareness, and you're just trying to repeat them in this relationship, it might not be right for this relationship. Sure, you must have, you might have seen your mom and dad do things a certain way, but if you're not aware of it and you're just blindly sort of applying it here, this is a different relationship, different times, different things that we're talking about here. So also become aware of where your ideas are coming from because you might realize now that you're consciously aware that you don't want to prescribe to those ideas. You want something different for your relationship. Okay, the fifth one is the pandemic. In your experience, and I think it's a well-known fact that the pandemic negatively affected mothers more so than fathers with regard to like leaving the workplace and then having to work from home and also take care of children. What are the biggest things like before you give tips, like what are the things that the pandemic that you saw in couples that you work with? Like how did that affect them? A lot of loneliness and isolation and lack of usual outlets. So for example, if before your outlet, your feel good or your coping mechanism was going to the gym to work out, well, that outlet's off the table. That might've worked great with your first kid's experience, but now with the second kid, you can't go to the gym, for example. And just a lot of isolation and loneliness. You know what's interesting about the pandemic? Like thinking back, I feel like even though we were literally stuck in the house together, like when my husband wasn't at work, I don't think we were as connected than we are now because by the time it was the evening, I was so overstimulated and I just wanted to be by myself, like touched out, like I just wanted to be in my room in the dark reading my book. Like I didn't want to spend time with my husband at all. And you would think like, oh, it's the pandemic. You can't go anywhere. You're going to be with your partner. But it was actually did the reverse. Like people got used to being on their phones a lot more. And I, I'm sure even though we were stuck in the house together, like a lot of couples felt more disconnected during that time. Yeah. Cause it's overstressed. So much. Yeah. And there's so much, so much more work and responsibilities than even before. And then you're together, like you're in each other's faces all day long. I mean, how much can you talk about things before you start losing patience with each <laughs> other? Right. Yeah. You want to be by yourself at the end of the day. Also anxiety, COVID-related anxiety, causing tension in the relationship, and sometimes different ideas, you know? So one partner could be more anxious about going out, the other is not, and then you've got a little bit of tension or conflict based on that. Or one partner could find it easier to go out to their usual outlets, and then the other partner feels like they're stuck at home and they don't have their usual outlets to turn to. So that kind of stuff. And I think people because they were at home so much got into whatever kind of routine and once the world started to get back to normal, it was hard to break out of that routine that they had lived in for so long. Next one, and this, I have not dealt with this, so I don't have any like input, but <laughs> different parenting styles. And I think in my situation, I'm kind of like the, just the nature of what I do. I'm exposed to so much like parenting and I kind of 
am the one that relays that to my husband. And we, if Milo, like we're going through a rough patch on, you know, he's doing some kind of behavior or bedtime struggles, whatever it is, we kind of like the biggest tip that I have for people is to sit down with your partner and like make a plan. Because what I found for bedtime struggles was if my husband's putting him to bed, he's doing one thing. And then I'm putting him to bed. I'm doing another thing. And just because of what I do, I'm like, what I'm doing is right. And you need to do what I'm doing. So it was nice to like sit down, have a conversation about it. And like, step by step, if he starts to have bedtime battles, like this is how we do it. So we're both on the same page. But what do you say to couples who maybe have different parenting styles? I can't imagine that. That must be so difficult. It's pretty common too. Yeah, I bet. And it begins from the moment the baby's born. I mean, you could have different ideas. We'll just feed the bottle or formula. And the other could be like, no, I'm only going to breastfeed. And there's already your first difference. Co-sleeping, sleeping separately. That's where parenting differences begin showing up as early as those days. So some things I'm just going to keep repeating, right? Like teamwork, for example. But with difference in parenting styles, again, I always say this to everyone. You have to understand yourself before you're trying to make changes. So you have to understand where is your parenting style coming from? Where are these ideas and expectations and ways of raising your child coming from? First, understand that make whatever is out of your conscious awareness more conscious, right? So your conversations can be more conducive because now you're just not like attacking each other back and forth, but having more meaningful conversations. Well, you know, this is the way I saw things happen with my parents and actually didn't like it. So I'm going to do it differently here. And it triggers me when I see you do it that way because it transports me back to my stuff from childhood. That's a more meaningful conversation that you're having. The other thing is it never helps to sit there with the belief that I'm right or wrong. But that is the belief couples get stuck with. Nope, my way is the right way. Your way is the wrong way. The second you do that, your partner's going to hear that and go, nope, my way is right. Like, Like, why do I also get to have a say or my way is also right, right? So now you've got two people who are now on opposite ends of the rope playing tug tug of war with each other when you could actually meet in the middle by respecting that your partner is a person who also brings things to the table. They are a voice. They are worthy of respect and hearing them out and listening to what they have to offer. When you open up that door, that already bridges the gap between the two of you, right? So yeah, I'm curious to know, like, how come you, you know, do this during bedtime? What what does that do for you, you know? And then they could have something, there's a nugget in there, they might go, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. I actually, I'm the primary parent as all mothers end up being. And I'm also more like, you know, read up on conscious parenting and this and that. So I'm, and just being a therapist, I'm more attuned to, you know, responding to needs and things like that. So I fall in that category, yet there is some like phenomenal things I learned from my husband that just came naturally to him. And it's when I opened up my eyes and ears to what he was saying, and then I would witness it and I would go, wow, like he was able to get the baby to sleep in that way. I never, I was resisting that idea, but now that I'm seeing it, that actually makes sense to me. So, you know, don't, you're, again, you're a team, you're a co-parenting partnership here now. So this is just as much your partner's baby as it is your baby. Give them the respect to hear them out before you go straight away to, nope, you're wrong, I'm right. 
that's not going to help. Actually, you got to be a little bit smart. If you want things to be your way, how are you going to get to that? By like dismissing, denying, you know, attacking your partner or by listening to them, hearing them out and trying to find something that feels right to both of you. Have you ever heard of the term maternal gatekeeping? It's like similar to what you said, like the mother is constantly looking over and like wants everything done their way. It's not a good thing because then your partner never gains confidence to do things on their own. Yeah. Let them figure some things out too. It's fine if they make mistakes or if they get some things wrong. Going back to my original point where I was saying you want to support each other's strengths. Uh, sorry, bring out each other's strengths and support the limitations and weaknesses, right? So if your partner's trying something, it's not working Let's not harp on them. Let's try to help them out with that. And maybe that's not their thing. So you just decide that's just going to be your thing and they'll do something else and give them the respect that you would want to. Conflicting values. This is probably similar to having different parenting styles. Probably also something that is difficult to deal with in couples. So this one too, it, it becomes difficult when couples are not aware of it. Because the second they become aware of it, the dynamic starts to shift. It's like, oh, now I get why us buying that house was such a big deal because we had different values on financial stability and this and that. And then suddenly it becomes less about the house and, oh, okay, so this is your definition of financial stability. This is my definition and we're sharing finances. So how can we balance this? So it just becomes more meaningful, conducive conversations when you bring the unconscious into the conscious. So Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner... I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling 
wrangler, which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. literally like a lot of these things are and every time people are like what's your number one piece of advice for moms I'm always like sit down and like reflect and think about things like don't just be reactive and defensive and like think and literally almost everything that we've talked about like one of the major tips or pieces of advice is think like, why am I, like, why is that important to Get me? Get to know yourself. Oh my God. Because and, as humans, we are literally living our lives not knowing ourselves. Yeah. And people go through the day just like robots reacting, reacting. My gosh, the entire never life. never do we sit and think. Yeah. It's like running on autopilot, just living your life the way that your brain is wired without pausing and going, wait, why did I think that? Why do, why did I react that way? Why do I behave in that way? Why am I scared of that? Mm-hmm know yourself get to know yourself and people might hear that and be like I don't even know how to do that well this is why therapy is so great and like counseling and because it literally it's like that's your homework it's like a third party that is asking you these questions and making you realize these things yeah so and that's why in my book I made a lot of like sections with tons of questions to use as reflection for yourself or to ask of each other to guide these sort of meaningful conversations, not from a reactive way, but more from a responsive way. Number eight, good old number eight, decline in intimacy. (laughs) I mean, is there a surprise that that happens? Like such a good topic. And I feel like that itself could be an entire podcast episode. What is a common one? So common and for so many reasons. How do you try and get couples back on track when it comes to that? Yeah. So one part of the conversation is the expectations piece. Like what are what are the expectations we have? Like how what postpartum level are you on? What are the expectations you have? Are you comparing your sex life to what it was? pre-baby to what it is now like where or is it ideas from social media or movies like let's first manage expectations here and get to reality because in reality couples are not having sex the way they make it seem after a baby I mean the woman's body is going through full-blown recovery and there's so much happening and you're breastfeeding and you're feeling gross and icky so nobody's feeling that sexy (laughs) those first few months after birth anyway and for men it's not like that their sex drive might be sort of the same because their body's not changing the way a woman's body has or their hormones level. Although, according to research, men too experience changes in their sexuality just due to sleep deprivation, exhaustion, and all those things. It makes sense. But again, for women, especially what I've come to find is when the emotional connection piece is not there, the physical intimacy piece is not going to be there. So in therapy, I really work on that, building that connection piece. Because when you start working on that emotional connection, the intimacy piece starts to fall in place with time. So that's a piece I really work on. And that goes back to your needs. Because oftentimes, 
like an example would be, let's say the mom does not feel supported. So she has built up resentment inside for not feeling supported. Partner reaches for physical affection. Rage. Get the hell off me. (laughs) Like, don't want, like, I'm resentful towards you right now. Definitely don't feel like, you know, even the touched out and all that piece is separate, but just relationally too, if you're not feeling it, if you're not feeling connected with your partner, you're not going to respond well to the hug or the well-gestured, whatever intimate act that they, uh, well-meaning intimate act that they you know, had, it could just be playing with your hair or just giving you a hug, a kiss on the cheek. And so I would be working on that piece. Like, wait, so what's happening that that's how you're reacting to their touch. And that's kind of a common da- dynamic too. It's like, I don't feel supported. I feel alone. And then the partner's like, I want physical affection. She keeps, and then you're stuck in a vicious cycle because then they don't feel like supporting you when you're pushing them away and not meeting then their they're needs. they're pissed off. And yeah. they have needs too. Physical connection could be a need or emotional intimacy could be a need. And when that's not being met, they're not going to want to support you. And then if you're not feeling supported, you don't want to respond to their needs. And now you, I've got a couple who's stuck in this vicious, vicious cycle coming in to see me. Yeah. And it's interesting because they might come to see you for lack of intimacy or like a decline in intimacy. But like you were saying, it's not just that. It's not like, okay, let's schedule sex on Wednesdays and everything's going to be fine. It's like, no, there's an emotional piece missing and it's, it's a puzzle. And it's, it's like your needs aren't being met. Like you're resentful for whatever reason. And it's like, it's more than just because a physical act. Yeah. You could force yourself and just sort of do it. You know, but like that <laughs> desire, the yeah. desire, the wanting to, the feeling like you want to do this with your partner. That's for the women, at least I have found that doesn't really come unless the emotional connection piece is there. So my interview with Tracy, which I did, it'll probably be out the week before this. She was talking about to practice, like speaking about emotions with your partner. And like we were saying, like a lot of men tend to be more avoidant and hold things in. She was saying like, print out a wheel of emotions and literally pick one emotion every week, sit down with your partner and just like start talking about when in the last week you felt that emotion, like in what situations, just to like practice speaking about emotions with your partner. And from there, like, it'll just get better and better and it'll become a normal thing that you do. Because like, if you have a partner that's avoidant, How do you, like, what would your advice be to try and get that emotional connection there? So it's, it's practicing getting in a vulnerable space with your partner, right? And if you've got an avoidant partner, they don't even know how to be vulnerable because they don't even know what's happening in their internal world. And in fact, vulnerable vulnerability probably feels scary and overwhelming. And that's when you see the shutting down, withdrawing sort of behaviors. So it's first creating a safe space for your partner. It's not going to happen if you're criticizing them, attacking them, belittling them, which is a characteristic of the anxiously attached partner. You often see reactive, critical, angry sort of behaviors, which shuts the avoidant partner down. So if you want them to be vulnerable with you, you have to learn to be vulnerable with them. Be soft, be respectful, be kind, and respect their need for space. So if they're not in the right space to have a conversation, don't push it. 
because that can be a tendency of the anxious partner because they need sort of that reassurance. Am I good enough? Am I worthy? Do I matter to you? Do you care about me? Are you going to talk to me about this? No? Okay, I'm going to ask harder now. I'm going to push harder. And the avoidant partner is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is way too much energy. They're going to shut down. They're going to walk away. They're going to start playing video games. Something like that's going to start happening, right? So respect their need for space because that's how they feel safe. And it could be something like, you know, okay, how about we talk... And therapy can help with this because then the avoidant partner, like if I was working with one, I would help them learn to communicate their needs in a way that can sit well with the anxiously attached partner. Because what happens is in that moment, the anxious partner has a need, the avoidant partner has a need. And how do you balance both people's need? And the anxious partner's need is connect, reassurance. I need you. Tell me this. I want to hear this from you right now. And the avoidant partner is like, all I need right now is space. This is way too much. This is overwhelming. I got to get away from you. And they both have needs. So how to communicate your need while still taking care of your partner's need. Stuff like that can help in therapy. So asking for that, giving your partner the space that hopefully they learn to ask for. Like, hey, I need 20 minutes. Let's talk about this after dinner or whatever it is. And then revisit the conversation and sometimes maybe not asking feeling questions because they might not respond to that. Maybe more thinking questions. So not how did you feel when X, Y, and Z happened? More like, so what did you think about when that thing happened? Hear their thoughts out because they might not respond well to feeling questions because they don't know how to answer feeling questions. Yeah, thinking. That's good. So thinking works because they, they're more logical things, yeah. left brain. So they can give you their thoughts and thoughts clue you into feelings right it's interesting one of the defense mechanisms is intellectualization which is like making feeling things more intellectualized and like you know yeah and then if they give you a thought where you can sort of guess okay from based on that thought sounds like you were feeling this so you can reflect that back which is like okay so it's, it sounds like you were feeling overwhelmed and then they can kind of affirm or deny that like yeah, I think it was overwhelmed or no, I think it was less that more this. So that's a way I would recommend. So number nine is infertility and loss. And along with this topic, I wanted to ask about, because this has come up so much in my community of people is like not knowing whether or not to have more children. And the difficulties that come up when one partner, like when you're not on the same page with that. So it's probably similar, like family planning, infertility, loss kind of stuff. That's a tough topic. I mean, it's such a, such a painful topic. And I always engage in exploration first. So many reasons why people want to have a baby. So many reasons why people don't want to have a baby. So many different ways each partner processed the loss or the infertility in the impact of it. Thing is, when we engage in, when you get to know yourself better and you get to know your partner better, you're having a very different conversation at that point because you've dug deeper. You've really understood where you're coming from. Your partner understands where you're coming from. You understand where they're coming from. And that's where compassion happens. That's where respect happens. That's where love and vulnerability happens. And you guys might start shifting actually in, what you originally thought. And now when you really understand each other better, you might be like, okay, well, based on that, I think I'd be more open to, let's say, trying again. Now that I understand what this means to you, for example, right? Or the other way around. So 
This one's a tough one. It depends couple to couple where they are in their journey of infertility or loss or grief, how, what impact it took on each person, what their core beliefs are, what got triggered, what are the reasons or motivations or intentions behind trying again or not trying again. For example, if it gets uncovered that one partner is running away from the idea of trying again, let's say because of fear, fear of inadequacy or fear I'm going to fail. Okay, now we, we can work on that fear because it's less to do with trying again. It's more to do with the fear that you're experiencing. And if we can start to alleviate that fear, then the partner might open up to the idea. So that sort of work. And I feel with regard to infertility or loss, and it's funny, it's like all the circles all connected. So if you have a woman who, and again, I'm talking heterosexual couples, if you have a woman who is able to verbalize their emotions, is very like open with how they're feeling and upset over whether it be like a miscarriage or infertility, and then you have a partner that's more avoidant and keeps things in, now you have a woman who feels like her partner almost like they don't care, like they're not as affected by it. And they're alone in their experience. And they're alone and, but really it's just they're not comfortable opening up about it. They, they could don't be, even know. They don't exactly. even know what they're feeling because they've never known how to attune to their feelings and they could be offering solutions, problem solving. And the woman's like, this is not what I need from you. This is not a problem we're trying to this solve. This is common, like men trying to just problem solve, which then women take it as like, they're just trying to dismiss what I'm feeling and put a bandaid on it and solve a problem. But that's not what they're trying to do. Oh, so like, so if you're listening to this podcast and if this sounds like you're a sort of dynamic, you know, let your partner know what your need is. Hey, I'm coming to you with something. I've been feeling some big stuff about it. I want to share with you. Would you please be my soundboard? I don't think I want solutions. I don't want a quick fix. I just want somebody who can hear me out and understand the pain that I'm experiencing. Kind of sets it up for your partner. Okay, so I'm not offering now, if your partner is the avoidantly attached with sort of beliefs around failure, they're going to struggle with this one because they got to fix their partner's problem and yes. solve it. Otherwise, somehow I'm failing. So you got to, you know, like give them permission to not solve, to not fix. You know, I just need you to be here for me as a shoulder to cry on. Yeah. And some things, lots of things that I, I call it complaining, but that I bring to the table like, oh, this sucks. I don't expect it to be fixed. Like there is no solution. That's just how it is, you know? And oftentimes on TikTok, if I'm complaining about, and I don't even like the word complaining because it makes it sound like it's, yeah, like I don't know, it's, whining a, around. it's a yucky yeah. word. Yeah. But my husband's job, like I will forever have to be the flexible one. Like there's no way he's gonna like leave a surgery because he has to go pick up Milo at daycare. I will end my podcast and go pick up Milo. Rationally, I understand why our family dynamic is that way, but it can still suck for me. And so oftentimes, like if I'm explaining that or talking about that struggle, people are like, whoa, what do you want? Your husband not to work? Like... And I'm like, no, I'm just I just want someone to see me and hear my experience. It just sucks. That's all. I'm not... And it's the same with... If I'm saying something to my husband about a situation, he'll instantly be like, 
well, like, do you want me to do this? Like what? I'm like, no, I'm just saying this sucks. That's all. Like, so as you're talking about, I'm thinking about validation because that's such a big one that I've noticed couples struggle with, especially men, you know, where it's just that there's this like fear attached to validating because if I validate that I'm in the wrong, I can't be in the wrong. So I can't validate what she's saying or what he's saying. They take it as like, it's my fault. Yeah. And that's not not validation as validation is not agreement. It's simply acknowledging your partner's experience. And, and I understand why it can be a tough one. These are not skills or tools we're taught. I don't know why we don't have a class starting from like elementary school, like one class that is like mental health tools or something, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like there should be a subject on this that teaches you communication 101. Like as a kid, you learn to communicate your needs or respond to a bully effectively and things like that. Right. So validation is a piece, a big one that I work with a lot of couples and literally like teaching them, this is a validating statement. And my Instagram has a lot of those examples. My book does, my blog does. So learn to validate your partner. It can be a game changer, a huge one. And it's so simple. It's like one sentence you can say and like it can just squash the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the last one is relationship distress. What would that be considered? So that's a culmination, right? Yeah. Like that's like that's where you're now you're feeling dissatisfied in your relationship entirely and it could be your communication could be breaking down you're feeling disconnected you're feeling resentful or unsupported you're 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 this increased conflict and tension because of all of these other things that are happening in your relationship and so generally you're just no longer happy in your relationship do you think couples regardless of what's going on would benefit from therapy or counseling Oh my gosh. Yes. Like as a therapist, I am so big on advocating, like, please do not wait for things to be bad. Therapy should never be your last resort. It should be like your, one of your second or third go-to to to try to like, first one can obviously be you try yourself. Second one could be sure you try some self-help books, blogs, but it should be like your top three. Like, okay, can't figure this out. Go to a therapist because Why wait for things to get so bad and wait for so much damage to be done to your relationship? You want to go to therapy when things are starting to feel off and you're like, hmm, this is not feeling as good as it used to. Something seems off. We're not able to really talk about it or figure it out. Why not turn to a therapist? I mean, when you hear a sound in your car that does not sound right, you're not, you don't wait for the day that it breaks down the middle of the highway. <laughs> you're like, mm, doesn't sound right. Let me just call the mechanic, take it real quick for maybe needs an oil tune change, up. tune up something. Right. And then, then it's a quick fix, right? It can be just quickly resolved, repaired solution, figured out whatever is happening. Now you've waited for it to break down the middle of the highway, logistics, tow, more money, more stress, Now there's more damage done to your car because you ran so many miles without oil. You know, you don't want to get to that point. So if you don't do that to your car, why do you do that to your relationship? Like, don't let it suffer so much. Therapy, unfortunately, is so tabooed to this day, although it's getting much better, thankfully. But turn to therapy, please. And find the right fit. Just because you try a therapist, it didn't work out. Don't don't give up on therapy. You just haven't found the right fit. So, you know, consult, try the first session. 
if it's not feeling right, don't waste more time or money. Just let the therapist know and look for a different one. All right. This was a great conversation. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Tell us about your book, when you expect it to come out. And yeah, your website, your blog, anything that you have that people can look into. So my website is myottawatherapist.com. I'm in Ottawa, Ontario. That's why the name. My Instagram is at the couple's couch where I do a lot of like quick one minute reels for tips and guidance that, you know, any your audience can turn to. Website has my blogs and a way to contact me if you're looking to find a therapist. And the book that I'm working on, which I'm so, so, so excited about, but to all the parents who are listening to me, I'm sure you can relate that I'm struggling to find the time with two little kids. <laughs> it's fully done. It's called Stronger Together, A Couple's Guide to Navigating Your Relationship After Baby. It's written. It's ready to go. It's fully edited. I'm just proofreading it. And my God, the proofreading process, it's like I just can't seem to find the time to just do it. So I'm hoping to have it done within this month and hopefully have it be published this fall. Hard copies on Amazon will be available and ebook link will be available on my website. And then after this book is out, I plan on doing workshops for couples to manifest the idea that I have. Like if you've got labor classes, we got to have mental health and relationship classes too in the communities that are available. Yes. That would be amazing because I think it's a lot more accessible than people going to do therapy. Like, oh, let's do this workshop. Are they and it's not commitment, right? It's like a one-time thing. Yes. Are they going to be virtual? So I want to do all platforms. Yeah. So maybe I'll start off in person, see what the response is. And then, yeah, for sure, virtual. So I can help couples outside of Ottawa. Yeah. Why not? And then, you know, it's like a two hour, let's say, workshop that could sort of cover the main meat of what you need to know to navigate your life better after baby. And if you're struggling, this is what you can do. That sort of a workshop is what I'm hoping to offer in the community. Hopefully gets a good response and then I'll do it virtually as well. Yeah, that is so needed. I will share once your book comes out. I can't wait to read it. I will share. I will let everybody know. So yeah, good luck on that. Thank and this so was a great training. conversation. This was so fun. I know. I yeah. love just like talking shit about my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow.